picture yourself in a, maybe in a coffee shop, a Starbucks or one of those kind of places, or maybe you're at a restaurant, one of the many Coney Islands around here. You're having a conversation with someone and you're trying to convince them of a particular idea. And then the people from the next table over chime in and they sort of get involved in the conversation. And, and so you realize your audience isn't just the person that you're talking to right there, but also indirectly some of the other people who are around you. But picture the stakes are more important than just winning an, an argument at a coffee shop or persuading someone to your point of view. Uh, if it had an impact on your freedom, if it had an impact on their eternal destiny, then you would have a picture of the sort of scenario that we see in the passage this morning. Paul is addressing primarily King Agrippa of the Jews, but Festus, the Roman official, is standing there listening, and there's others present as well who are hearing the message that Paul is proclaiming. And so let's pick up actually the end of our passage last week, chapter 25. On the next day when Agrippa, verse 23, chapter 25, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium, accompanied by commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And you'll remember, Festus finds himself in the difficult situation of having to come up with charges against a man who is innocent so that he could justify his appeal to the emperor. And so this is part of what's going on. He's hoping something will come to light or perhaps Agrippa will help him craft these accusations, these charges in such a way that the emperor is not going to find uh, this to be, have been a foolish call on his part to have allowed it to get to the point of an appeal to the emperor. King Agrippa then says to Paul at the beginning of chapter 26, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. When it says he stretched out his hand, it wasn't um, probably so much a gesture of getting everybody to be quiet as it was a sign of greeting and acknowledgement to Agrippa that Agrippa had said, you're now permitted to speak, and so he, he acknowledges that and he begins to speak. The first few verses are a sort of a, not flattery, but rather a recognition of who Agrippa was and a, an expression of respect for his person. Verse 2, in regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Some might see in this a sort of uh, ironic expression, since Agrippa was aware of the customs of the Jews, but didn't particularly follow them. But in likelihood, Paul is seen in Agrippa a more impartial audience than he would have received before the Sanhedrin, for example, who have been plotting his death now for several years. So he speaks to Agrippa honestly, sincerely, in hope, as we see later in the chapter, that Agrippa will be persuaded not so much to let Paul go. And this is, this is part of the tension in this chapter. Is Paul expecting to be set free? And the reality is, he's appealed to Caesar, so even if they accept what he is saying, as they do at the end of the chapter, he's not going to be set free. He sees in this a further fulfillment of the responsibility, the task that God has given to him to speak the gospel before kings and rulers, before Jews and Gentiles, and so that's what he's trying to do faithfully. Verse 4, he gives some background. 
So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. What's he saying? If the Jews were willing to testify on my behalf, they would have no choice but to acknowledge that I was one of them, a devout Jew, following God faithfully, of all, as he says in the book of Galatians, of all people, devout, strict, religious, following the letter of the law to the best of my ability. Paul was a, Paul was a Pharisee, probably not an actual member of the Sanhedrin, but very closely associated with key members of the Sanhedrin, like Gamaliel, who was his teacher. And he was one who was a devout Jew. And so he makes that as part of the basis, the background to his appeal. Verse 6, Now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by Jews. Here Paul is highlighting both the connection that he has with Agrippa and the rest of the Jews and the irony that they continue to reject what should have been the fulfillment of their hope. These are our 12 tribes, mine, yours, Agrippa. The people who are attacking and accusing me are my own fellow countrymen. The hope that I have been proclaiming is the hope that we've all been waiting for and looking forward to, the hope that the Messiah would come. But they have rejected it. Verse 8. Why is it considered a credible, incredible among you if God does raise the dead? This is not an expression, I think, so much of frustration as it is just of the sort of attitude we see in, in, in the book of Romans when he says, It's my heart's desire and plea for the people of Israel that they may be saved. This is the thing that you've been waiting for. This is the thing that you should believe. But the Pharisees did not see the resurrection as something having present reality. They saw it as something down the road. God will raise everybody in the end times. Kind of like Martha's statement at the death of Lazarus. The Sadducees denied a bodily resurrection. The Romans, as we'll see, and the Greeks, the pagans, saw it as foolishness. People rise from the dead. There is no such thing. And so Paul is pushing back against that and saying, Why do you reject this? But I was like you, verse 9, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities." I grew up like you. I'm being accused of having forsaken the faith of my fathers, but what I am teaching is the actual fulfillment of that faith and hope. Why is it so hard to believe? And then he goes back to, and here's where I was. I was like you. I didn't believe it. I tried to stamp out those who taught it. I pursued them in various kinds of persecution. The locking up in prison and the casting vote against them... Uh, seems very plausible. Some have raised an issue with his statement 
uh, about them being put to death, how could they uh, put people to death? They didn't have the authority of execution. There's a couple of possible answers. One would be that they decided that they were worthy of death and then tried to persuade the Romans to carry it out. The other possibility, looking at the case of Stephen, is that they did actually execute people, and it seems like perhaps the Romans turned a little bit of a blind eye toward it in certain cases. They technically did not have the power to crucify Christ, but they wanted to make it legitimate in the eyes of the people, so they took it before Pilate. But there were times when they took matters into their own hands. The beating of Paul almost to death, all these sorts of things were not according to the law, but they still happened. It's along the same sort of lines as when people say, well, you know, if we just outlawed stealing, there'd be no more thieves. Well, people still do things that are wrong, right? And so Paul very well may have been involved in circumstances like that of Stephen in which followers of Christ were put to death. It's fascinating, verse 11, that he tried to force them to blaspheme. What did this mean? There were, there's good historical evidence that one of the things that um, those who opposed Christianity in the early years and later the, the Romans and other pagan groups tried to do was to force those who had professed the name of Christ to blaspheme the name of Christ and thereby show that their faith was not real. This raises a little bit of a question, which I don't want to spend too much time on. Could someone who denied Christ in a public sort of way like that genuinely still have been a believer? I think we would have to say that there's at least some biblical evidence for it. Peter himself cursed and swore, I do not know the man, I have nothing to do with him, and yet God received him back. I think the, the important difference is this. Someone like Judas rejected Christ, betrayed him, turned aside from him, and did not repent of that sin. Someone like Peter, in God's grace and mercy, did repent of that sin. And so those in the early years of the church who denied Christ but later repented of it and, and joined the fellowship again could have been genuine believers. Those who denied Christ and said, you know what, it's more important to me to have all the things back that are, that are valuable to me in this life instead of my faith in Christ, I think showed that they did not have true faith. Paul then describes his encounter in, on the way to Damascus. Verse 12, while so engaged, pursuing, seeking death, trying to get them to blaspheme, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you rescuing you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. There's at least three things that I think need to be highlighted from this section. The first is the apparent discrepancies between this part and what he said in chapter 9 and chapter 22. Why is this description 
longer and have different or more details than those two. And then this question of Paul's commission. And then finally, what is the message that he proclaims as the gospel message? So let's turn back to Acts chapter 9 and look there briefly. Luke describes in chapter 9 and verse 3, as he, that's Paul, was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. So we see some of the same details, a bright light, a voice from heaven, a statement of, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but not all the same details. Turn over to chapter 22. Paul gave his defense before the Jews, and in Acts 22 and verse 6 through 11, he says, as it, it happened as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go on into Damascus. And there will you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And then he gives, shares in the next few verses the words that Ananias shares with him of his commission from God. Why then is this section longer and with greater detail? I think that it is important to note that the first account in Acts 9 is Luke's description of Paul's experience, not his own description of it. Verse 22 is probably a shorter defense, knowing that his life is in danger and he may be cut off at any moment. And so he's not going to go into great detail of everything because he's trying to get through the whole thing before he's interrupted, which does not succeed. But now before Agrippa, his fate is in some sense not in question. There's not an angry mob going to come drag him out. He has more time to explain in detail the commission that God has given to him, his experience, his conversion, the commission God has given to him, and the message that he was called to preach. So that's why I think that this particular section is more extended. So what's the significance then of Jesus saying to Paul, why do you kick against the goats? In their culture, you would have had various beasts of burden, whether it be a horse or a donkey, or an ox, and you're trying to get it the way that you wanted it to go, and so you would poke it with a sharp stick. And if it didn't want to go the right way, it was kicking, it was pushing back against that prodding of the master for the direction that it needed to go. Jesus is describing Paul's own experience, his own life, as ironically being that of opposing the will of God which that in and of itself would have been a rebuke to Paul because he was so convinced that everything that he was doing was pleasing to God, was honoring to God, was fulfilling all that a good Jew should be. And so for Jesus to say, you're not doing what I've called you to do, would have been a rebuke to Paul. 
the statement that Jesus is the one whom he is persecuting highlights the connection between Jesus and his church and helped, I think, Paul to see, I'm not just opposing God's will, but by opposing God's people, I am opposing Christ himself. And then we move to his commission. I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to what you have seen, but to the things in which I will appear to you. Paul's conversion is not described in 1 Thessalonians 1 sort of terms. I turned um, from idols to serve the living and true God. Part of that was because as a Jew he wouldn't have been following idols, and part of that was because it is very clear from the radical transition in Paul's life that genuine conversion had taken place. What was his task? To rescue, uh, God's task was to rescue him from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles. Paul's task was to preach the message that would open their eyes. And here he gives a summary of the gospel so that they may turn from darkness to light, so that they may turn from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. There are many different appropriate ways to present the gospel message, but this idea of turning, of allegiance, of forgiveness of inheritance, these are all key aspects of the gospel that Paul is highlighting in this brief statement. Why is it important that there is a turning from darkness to light? Because in the darkness, we are dead in our sins. In the light of following Christ, we are no longer enslaved to those sins and we have a relationship with God. Why is it important that we were a part of the dominion of Satan and now we're under the dominion of God? Because Christianity is more than just I checked a box on a piece of paper and now I'm following a different, I'm part of a different club. It is a, a question of kingdoms. Serving Satan, enslaved by him to do his will. Serving God to share in the glory that comes in his kingdom. Why is it important that there is forgiveness of sins? Because the gospel is more than just turning over a new leaf. I've been trying to be a good person. I'm going to try a new way to be a good person. The gospel is a recognition that I have never been a good person. I'm a sinner. I have offended a God who must be the one to forgive me because no human being can forgive me. No priest, no government official, no fellow human being can forgive my sins. Only God alone can forgive my sins. And if we don't recognize that, we're not truly saved. Why is it important that there is an inheritance? Because Christianity is not just something for a particular moment, something for this life on earth, but it alters our eternal destiny. Both the promise of that inheritance and the actual receiving of that inheritance in eternity in God's presence. And the only way that all of this is made possible is that people's eyes are open. How does that take place? It doesn't explain it in this passage, but in other passages we know that the opening of people's eyes comes 
through the sanctification of the Spirit, through the preaching of God's Word, as it says in Thessalonians. And so that is what God called Paul to do. Here's King Agrippa, possibly one who's living an immoral lifestyle, if the historical records are accurate, possibly one who is more concerned about the nation that rules over his people than actually serving his people. And here Paul is speaking to him of eternal kingdoms, of forgiveness of sins, of an eternal inheritance more than just a kingdom of this earth. Paul's calling him to repentance. Are you going to believe the hope of what you know or are you going to reject it and just live for this life here and now? We see some of these ideas in the next verses to follow. King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Paul's making a bit of an understatement. I fervently sought to obey the, the heavenly vision. I declared at Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all Judea and even to the Gentiles... And some people have taken exception with the way that Paul laid out the order of these things, but he's just saying, in all these places, I did the task that God had assigned me to do. Repent, turn to God, perform deeds appropriate to repentance. Repentance is rejecting this, then there's the turning, and then there's the living out of that turning. All three of those things are important because if I don't call this sin, I'm not saying what God says about it. If I don't turn away from this, then I'm still living for and loving these things. If I don't then live for God, then it's an empty profession. And people will try to say, well, if you say people have to do what's right, then that's works righteousness, and that's not what the Bible teaches. But if you do not live out good works, having professed Christ, your faith is not real. The good works do not make you right in God's sight, but the good works are evidence that God is, in fact, at work in you. No good works, God's not working in you. Don't get the order wrong, but don't, in an overreaction to saying, some people say you have to work to get to heaven, make you think that, well, I don't ever have to do anything good because I'm not saved by works. It's not the basis of our salvation, but it is a necessary part of genuine salvation. What was the response of people to his message? Some Jews seized me, tried to put me to death. And this phrase sums up Paul's ministry experience in one phrase of what happened over and over and over again. Constant opposition, constant attempts on his life. But he highlights, verse 22, that he had help from God. Which goes back to verse 17, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles. Had help from God, verse 22, and now he's testifying to small and great not short and tall, but those who are, who are unimportant in the sight of the world and those who are important in the sight of the world, whether it's the servant standing there in the chamber as this is being said, or whether it's the king himself, he's testifying the message of the gospel. 
And he highlights, he connects to it back to what he'd said earlier. I was a devout Pharisee, but I was following God the wrong way, not seeing in Christ the fulfillment of our hope. Verse 22, I stated nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would take place. Christ would suffer. By reason of his resurrection, he would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now the conversation from the other table breaks into Paul's conversation. Paul, you've gone mad. What was the point of objection for Festus? It was probably this idea of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Some have said it was the idea that Jews and Gentiles were on an equal footing in God's sight, but I think more likely it was the fact that Paul said Christ was raised from the dead. Festus would not have been ignorant of the events that had taken place in Judea, but I'm sure in his mind he would have rationalized it away as some scheme of the Jews or some... Um, there has to be a reasonable explanation for this. People don't rise from the dead. And the only reason that Paul is saying this is because he's had his head in books too much and he's thought about all these sorts of things and it's driven him to a kind of, of crazy belief. Paul, you've, you've gone mad. Paul says very clearly, very calmly, I am not out of my mind, but I utter words of sober truth. And then Paul turns back to his primary audience, which is King Agrippa. Not that he had no hope for Festus, but he had a burden and a desire and a hope that Agrippa would believe the things that were being said. Why? Verse 26 this has not been done in a corner. Verse 27, the prophets testify it. Verse 28, what's Agrippa's response? In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. Some people have seen this as being a statement of irony. You've, you've, had, um, um, you've had this little time of trying to present your testimony to me and you think I'm going to be persuaded? Some people have seen in it a sort of a mocking response, and I think probably the best way to see it is just uh, an acknowledgement. Paul, I know what you're trying to do, but it's not worked yet. What's Paul's prayer then? Whether it takes a little time or a long time, I pray that not only you, but all who hear me today might become such as I am apart from these chains, except for these chains. Paul did not wish for everyone else the specific course of suffering that God had set him on. But he did want for all of them to hold on to the hope of the gospel. And I think if we didn't pause here and ask ourselves some questions, we would not be doing justice to this passage. Sometimes we think when we are sharing the gospel with someone that it's only for that one person's benefit. But there are usually other people watching and listening. Sometimes we think that if we share the gospel, it's just going to sort of happen and that person will trust Christ. But Paul acknowledges here it may take a long time. Sometimes we think it will happen simply because of our efforts. But 
Prayer is involved in this. Paul says, I would wish to God, I, God, here's my prayer for these people. God's the one who has to change them. God's the one who has to save people. And so there's the irony that we might become so confident in our abilities to share the gospel that we fail to depend on God as being the one who's able to change people. And then I think perhaps the most important thing to think about from this verse. Is this an idea, a truth, that you are so convinced of that you both fervently desire it for other people and are willing to spend your life seeing it accomplished? God has not specifically commissioned each of us in the exact way that He did Paul. God hasn't said, hey, you're going to go to this country and you're going to testify me to these groups of people and some of them will believe and some of them will not and I'll be with you. By name. But he has commissioned the church as a whole to take the gospel, to make disciples, to see people converted and growing in their knowledge of Christ and following him. And so there's a sense in which all of us are commissioned, like Paul, to do this task. And sometimes we don't have... Sometimes we don't have a burden for people in the way that Paul expressed it here. Whether because we're just busy with other things in life, whether because we've not seen anyone saved recently and so we've come to, at least in the back of our minds, doubt the power of God to actually save people, whether because we've tried it and we've faced opposition and we've said, I'm not sure it's worth it, there could be a variety of reasons that we would not have this sort of thing that Paul says in verse 29 be the thing that is constantly on our minds, but are any of those things valid excuses? Busyness is just a fact of life. If you're not a kid, you have responsibilities. And even if you're a kid, you have some responsibilities. So we got to make them happen. But if we are successful at our jobs and fail at what God calls us to do as believers, what good is that? Fear, or perhaps lack of belief in the power of the gospel. Just because we didn't see it work in a previous occasion doesn't mean that it can't work. We're not in the business of doing things only because they seem to work. That's kind of like a driving mentality of... of uh, our society, at least in the business world, if it works, do it. If it doesn't work, stop doing it. But do we take God at His word when He says, speak this truth, some will believe. You believed, right? So the gospel has power to change people. The gospel has power to convert people we should become convinced of that and be reminded of that truth. 
And if your reason for not sharing it is opposition, ask yourself if you've gone through the sort of opposition that Paul faced. You can read about it in Corinthians and in Galatians. See the things that Paul went through. And it's not as though Paul was perfect or the only example to look up to. But I think there is a parallel to what it says in um, Hebrews 12, that there are times when we give up too easily. We've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and are striving against sin. Look to Christ as your example. In the same sort of way, sometimes we have not thrown our all into pursuing this task that God has called us to do. So here's an example. Follow that example. Paul, I think, is echoing here what he writes in 1 Corinthians 1, where he says that the Greek seeks wisdom and the Jew seeks a sign, but that's not what they're going to find in Christ. They will instead find Christ, God's power, God's wisdom, if they truly believe in Him. And so as far as we know, Festus did not believe. As far as we know, Agrippa did not believe. But Paul faithfully accomplished his task. And that's what we must do too. The measure of success is not how many people hear the message through you and believe that message. If no one ever believes from the message that we are presenting, there could be some way in which we need to improve the way that we're presenting to make it reflect Scripture more accurately, something along those lines. But ultimately, if God is the one that saves people, the measure of success is not primarily how many people I can say, well, this many people trusted Christ because of me. Because it's not about because of you. It's about God using you to accomplish this task. But will you, like Paul, prove obedient to what God has revealed? Paul had a heavenly vision. We have God's revelation. Are we going to fulfill the responsibilities that God has given to us? Was Paul doing what was right? Verses 30 to 32 would say yes. The king stood up and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Not only did Paul not deserve death, but Paul also did not deserve imprisonment. He was yet in prison. He could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. Paul was doing what was right. Paul was doing what God had called him to do. And God had repeatedly spared his life. It was not yet his time. And without being mystical or strange or exaggerating any of those sorts of things, sometimes we question whether we should do a particular thing because we are fearful of what might happen to us. If God has said it's not our time to be in His presence, nothing can touch us. And in saying nothing can harm us, but nothing can touch us for the purpose of ending our lives. Christ said in His own experience, my time had not yet come. Paul's own experience, his time had not yet come for several years after this. And in our own experience, we have a responsibility to follow God faithfully until our time has come. We don't know when that will be. 
So are we going to follow Paul's example? Speak the gospel, believing that it's more important than the busyness of life, more important than our concerns about its ability to succeed, more important than our fears about what might happen next. God can work through the gospel message. So proclaim it clearly and accurately, and you will have fulfilled what God wants you to do as a Christian with regard to those who don't know Christ around you. There's a lot more to being a Christian. I don't want to make it sound like evangelism is the only thing that we do. But it is an important part of what we must do. So are we doing it? Let's pray. Lord, help us to pray, to desire as Paul did, that whether it takes a short time or a long time, that those that we present the gospel to would trust in you. Help us to have that sort of love and concern for the people around us. Help us to have that level of commitment to you. Help us to value that above so many other things that we can pour our time and our money and ourselves into that are not really that important. Lord, help us to faithfully follow you as we share the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.